that's okay. So we're continuing our series this morning titled Those Among Us as we look at what scripture teaches us about angels, Satan, and demons. And you and I, we have an enemy. His name is Satan. I should say one of his names is Satan. That name Satan means adversary. He's also called in scripture the devil, which means slanderer. In Revelation, he's called two terms that sound similar, Abaddon and Apollyon, which means he is a destroyer and destruction. The passage that Carolyn read to us, he's called the lion, which means he's our opponent. In other parts of the Bible, he's given the titles of tempter. He entices us to sin. He's murderer. He solicits people to eternal death. He's called a liar. He perverts the truth. And he's called the accuser. He accuses believers before God. Christians have an uphill battle against Satan. Or like a guy that used to give me golf lessons would say when I had something tough I was going to have to do, he said, boy, you have a tough road to hoe. And we're in this message series, Those Among Us. Last week we looked at what scripture says about angels. Today we're going to look at Satan and next week, demons. And in our time together today, we're going to look at Satan's plummet to the earth from Ezekiel, his position on the earth from 2 Corinthians, and his purpose on the earth from 1 Peter. So let's first look at Satan. Where did he come from and how did he end up on the earth? Ezekiel is where I'm going to read first. I hope you have a Bible you can turn to and follow with me uh, as we look at these three passages together. And Ezekiel was a prophet that ministered during the exile, much like Daniel, who we read from last week. Ezekiel ministered from 592 to 570 BC for 22 years in Babylon among the exiles. He was a contemporary to Daniel that was also in Babylon and to the prophet Jeremiah, but Jeremiah gave his prophecies in Judah and Jerusalem. And the passage we're about to read here is a section of prophecies given from chapter 25 to 32, all about Israel's different enemies and how God is going to judge those enemies. And this specific prophecy is given against a place called Tyre, which was in north, in the north, which was occupied by the Phoenicians. And the people of Tyre were one of Israel's chief enemies. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 through 19. Ezekiel writes, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the once, and the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your setting and sockets, was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You are on the holy mountain of God, 
You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have, bought, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to the ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you and have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. In this prophecy that Ezekiel is giving about the king of Tyre, he's also talking about Satan. And we see in verses 12 through 15, Satan's unique privileges that he had before the fall. And you probably picked up on some of those as I was reading through it from what you know about scripture. We read here that Satan, as an angel, he had that seal of perfection in verse 12. He was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty in heaven. He was in Eden. Every precious stone was his covering. Down at the end of verse 13 and in verse 15, it says, you were created. That's one thing we looked at last week, that angels are a creation of God. And, and Satan was one of those angels that were created. Verse 14 says, Satan was an anointed cherub. In scripture, usually there are angels described, and then there are seraphim, those are a type of angels, and then cherub are another type of angels. And the cherub were probably the inner circle of angels closest to God that worshipped him. And Satan was part of those cherubim, those cherub angels. And in heaven, he was on the mountain of God. He was in the midst of the stones of fire, and he was blameless. But in verse 15... It says, unrighteousness was found in him. And that's where we learn about Satan's judgment and fall to the earth in verses 16 through 19. It says, Satan, you were internally filled with violence. You sinned and you were cast from the mountain of God. You were cast from the midst of the stones of fire. You were cast down to the ground because of the multitude of your iniquities in verse 18. Because of his unrighteousness, it says, Satan, you profaned your sanctuaries. You will cease to be forever. Now you might say, I don't see that word Satan in there. It's talking about this king, right? And that's a good question. It appears to me, at least, and most people will say that this passage, God is using a prophecy talking about an earthly king to also describe the similarities that king has with Satan and his fall and sin in heaven. And I think that Ezekiel describes Satan in this way for three reasons. Not super clear and explicit like we might understand. And Ezekiel does that for three reasons. One 
people back in the Old Testament communicated very differently than you and I. We've all been raised in America in Western schools where we're taught proposition statements, we're taught outlines and formal thinking. But people back in a lot of the Old Testament times that couldn't read or write, you conveyed information differently. If you're going to tell someone something, you gave them a story or used a metaphor or an image. For example, in Psalm 23, David didn't write, God loves you. He says, God is like a good shepherd. He uses the shepherd image to convey that information. Throughout the Old Testament, God could have given us a list of good qualities Christians could follow and bad qualities we should avoid. There are a few places, like Proverbs and Exodus, but most of the Old Testament, God gives us Bible characters that tell us stories of good examples to follow and bad examples to avoid. He uses people to describe for us what we should do and shouldn't do. So people communicated differently back in Ezekiel's time, and that's why he uses this king to describe Satan. But it shouldn't surprise us that Ezekiel describes Satan in this way, because from what we know about Satan, this is his usual method of operation. One of Satan's ways he accomplishes his desire to defeat believers and destroy us is to get behind evil and wicked rulers. We see that throughout the Bible in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, in Daniel chapter 9, and in Matthew 4. Satan doesn't come out plainly in front of people, but instead he gets behind world rulers and he props them up and uses them to accomplish his will. And this king of Tyre seems to be one of those world rulers that Satan has been propping up. And as Satan judges the king of Tyre, he's also describing the power behind the king of Tyre, which is Satan. And a third reason this describes Satan is because of the different descriptions of Satan in other parts of the Bible. As I read some of those highlights there, you notice that it said Satan was in the Garden of Eden. We know that from chapter 3 of Genesis. That his chief sin was pride. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And from Job, we know that Satan had access to heaven at some point in time. These descriptions by Ezekiel of Satan match other parts of Scripture. So God, he's taken this earthly king of Tyre, and he's condemning him, but he's also using the similarities between this king of Tyre to describe for us this picture from the background of Satan's original life in heaven, sin, and fall to the earth to describe for us Satan's plummet to the earth. But now that Satan is on the earth, what's his position? What is he doing here? What is his role? And Paul describes that for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Corinth. He wrote one before 1 Corinthians. He wrote one between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And then he wrote this one. It's the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. Because they needed a little extra help and instruction. Corinth was a place located on the map, if you can picture it. It was in this little narrow, thin strip of land here. And then it had land that stretched out down below it and ocean all around it. So you had an option. You could sail your boat all the way down around this big landmass, or you could park near Corinth, throw your cargo on 
some horses, take it the four miles across that little strip and put it on another ship. And he saved a lot of time and money. And Corinth was situated right there in the middle of that four mile strip. There was about half a million people that lived there and it was a booming city with lots of economic activity. And in this first section of Paul's letter to the believers in Corinth, he's describing the divisions that are going on in the church. And he takes time to tell the believers in the church why the Jews in their culture and why the Gentiles are not accepting the gospel that seems to be presented to them. He tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now how Paul describes Satan as the God of this world should not surprise us. He's called that in other parts of scripture, specifically by the apostle John, who lived longer than all the other apostles and saw probably more wickedness than the other apostles that wrote letters in our Bible. In John chapter 12, verse 31, I'm going to read the New Living Translation. John says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. John 14, 30, he says, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me. Then in John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he writes, We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So that's how the Bible describes Satan. And here in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul and how he describes Satan's title for us. Did you catch that? He is the God of this world. That's how Paul describes him. At some, label, at some level, Satan roams the earth we live on and has power and authority over the earth. And we see that all the time. We don't have to go far in our culture to see evil, wickedness, and suffering that Satan causes. I was watching a documentary recently where I learned that during World War II, there was a span of World War II where 100,000 people died every single day just in one part of World War II. So Satan, he's the God of this world. We learn about his title from Paul, but we also learn about his work. Paul tells us his work, that Satan blinded the minds of the unbelieving in verse four. Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. And the picture that comes to mind here when I read this is kind of like a horse that's racing and they put those blinders on the horse so the horse can only see what's in front of them. And I think that might be what Satan does as his work, is he takes unbelievers and he lets them only focus on certain things that they never can hear the gospel or let it get in. Maybe they're wrapped up in materialism about wanting a better job, more money, bigger house, fancier vacations, and because of that, they're never going to take time to slow down and hear the gospel. Or some people are so focused on about how the Bible is full of errors and messed up, they'll never take time to 
to stop and realize, you know, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar that are talked about in the Bible, those are all in contemporary history. But Satan blinds those people to think that the Bible doesn't have any historical value to them. Chip Ingram in his book, The Invisible War, says one of the biggest lies we fall for today is rampant even in our churches. He has convinced us that life is a playground, that our primary goal is to be happy, and that God is the cosmic vending machine that can make it happen. So Satan's title, he's the God of this world. Satan's work is that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. And his purpose, he says in verse 4, is so that they do not see the light of the gospel. That's Satan's purpose. So they can't see the gospel. When we tell them, you're a sinner and you need a savior, he blinds them and they say, what do you mean I'm a sinner? I recycle. I do my part, right? I pay my taxes. When we say you're saved by faith, that's all you have to do, believe. You say, why would I believe in anything but myself? I can accomplish what I want in life. When we say, but Jesus, he died for you. They say, who needs Jesus? I'm doing fine without him. Satan doesn't want them to see the gospel, the light of the gospel. And I share these two verses with you because it's important for how we respond. Right? When we talk about the gospel, we need to make sure we don't take it personally if we share the gospel with unbelievers and they reject it. Right? I want to make sure that we remove the frustration that sometimes comes when we interact with unbelievers. It's easy to get frustrated and angry when we share the gospel or do kind of things and they just kind of push it all aside. Last year in October, one of my dad's good friends that we always called an uncle to me, even though he wasn't physically really an uncle, but it was my dad's good friend. He got COVID really bad and he spent six weeks in the hospital, most of those in the ICU. And when my mom and dad were visiting us here, that guy happened to call my dad sitting on our couch at my house. And so my dad gave me the phone to talk to him. And just that Sunday in our church service, we had prayed for him publicly together. And I told him, I said, hey, Jim, it's good to talk to you. You know, we prayed for you at church on Sunday. A little bit of pause. And then I hear, give the phone back to your dad. And at first I was a little, that kind of took it personal, but that's just where he's at with his spiritual life. But it's easy to get frustrated and angry, but we need to make sure we don't take it personally because Satan is actively blinding them. And just as we don't take it personally, we need to make sure that we don't take responsibility. Right? I want to make sure we remove the burden that sometimes we feel like it's our responsibility to get other people saved. If they don't accept the gospel and don't believe in Christ, it's easy for us to think, you know, it's my responsibility. I should have done a better job. I should have spoken out more and been more direct in my answers. I should have given better answers to answer their questions. I should have been bold enough or had more courage. It's easy to feel those things but we need to make sure that we don't take responsibility. Our job is to be faithful, to share love for others through our works and to share the gospel to others through our words. That's our responsibility. And we shouldn't take it personally, nor should we take that responsibility on ourselves. 
So while Satan has been thrown down to earth, he's fallen to earth, he has a position as the God of this earth. Lastly, 1 Peter, which Carolyn read for us, tells us that Satan, he has a purpose on earth that affects us and affects the way we should live. 1 Peter talks a lot about suffering, if you've ever read First and Second Peter. It was written to a group of Gentile believers that had been scattered around the different regions. And because they were devout Christians and had a certain way of living, they looked very different than the pagans living around them. And because of the way they lived, they often were ostracized, sometimes persecuted. Sometimes they had trouble gathering food for their families. They were kind of put out of the normal society because they were different than everybody else. So Peter writes 1st and 2nd Peter to encourage these people in their suffering. And while he talks about what they have to go through for suffering in chapters 3 and 4, in chapter 5, Peter transitions to talk about their service and how their service of God also will mean their suffering. In 1st Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he tells them, he really warns them, he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter reminds us that we have an adversary, right? The word for adversary is the Greek word antidikos, which means opponent in a lawsuit is the origin. And then devil means, is the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer. And we must never forget that Satan, he's our opponent and he's our slanderer. And Peter uses the image of a lion here to describe what Satan does. And if you're familiar with a lion, they are often, excuse me, active. Uh, they live during the day, but they almost always hunt during the twilight times or when it's dark. And the reason is lions don't have a lot of stamina. They can run really fast, but not for very long. So in order to catch their prey, they often have to be close to their prey when they start to attack. And they have to use bushes or trees or unlevel terrain so that they can sneak up and get close to a zebra or a gazelle or whatever it is that they want to kill. And that makes sense for us because Satan, he doesn't show up plainly and clearly in our lives. So wouldn't that be easy if we could just point to things and we saw Satan? Instead, he is sly and crafty and tries to sneak up on us just like a lion does. He gets under and around and behind things and he uses those things to accomplish his will, just like he used the king of Tyre to accomplish his will that Ezekiel talked about. When this thing called malaria was spreading all over around the world and we didn't know what caused it, you know, this person would get sick and then this person would get sick and they never talked to each other and never met or how is this thing spreading, all this malaria popping up. It wasn't until they realized there's these little tiny things flying around called mosquitoes that were sharing malaria. Once they figured out the source of the problem, they could start to prevent it with nets and things like that. 
And that's how Satan works. He's never on the surface. He's behind and under working in things. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this verse, he says, the actual human opponents, even your fiercest persecutors, are not, in fact, the enemy. There is a real enemy, and he will be using them. And there are different enemies in our culture that Satan uses. I spent some time this week just thinking about pastors I know that have encountered difficulties where Satan uses certain things. One pastor came to mind. He was a pastor for 40 years in the same church, but the last 20 years he spent addicted to painkillers. Because at some point in time, he had an associate pastor that tried to steal the church from her and then hurt him, and he started taking painkillers to ease the pain. And he could never get off of painkillers and spent 20 years addicted to painkillers. Another pastor that succumbed to anger and emotions caused his downfall. A guy named Mark Driscoll, just a little ways from here, had a big church and these emotional outbursts caused hurt and pain and inflicted things on people. And because of that, he was asked to no longer be the pastor. Satan used the background of anger and emotions in someone and caused the ministry to suffer. One president of a denomination recently was removed simply because of his harsh communication to staff, not being love and kind, and he kind of had a way of just dealing with people and telling them what to do, and it caused all these issues, and he was fired from his position, all because of a way he communicated. Sexual perversion is another one. If you follow the news, you might have heard of a guy named Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels, or Brian Houston, all within the last two years, well-known, world-known pastors that because of different sexual perversion that occurred in their life, they lost their ministries, tainted their name, tainted their church's name, tainted their ministry's name. Satan uses those things to take us down. And when Satan is looking for someone, he's looking for the biggest target he can. He's not satisfied to go to the river or a stream and get a little brown trout or a rainbow trout. Satan wants to take down a whale. And he looks for those people that he can take them down. Just as Satan appeared as a serpent in Genesis to deceive Eve, Now he appears as a lion and he devours us. But what should be our response? How do we fight back? Our actions should be one that we need to be sober and respect Satan, just like Peter describes in verse 8. He tells us, be sober and respect Satan. That describes our attitude. He says, be sober of spirit. One thing I've told they teach electricians that are learning to be electricians, they're going to be working on things that have all this amazing power that can come through them. And they tell them, you need to learn that before you handle electricity, you need to respect it, right? They have to understand what's going through there and its potential to kill them. And when we learn that Satan is on earth, that this is his playground, We have to have a healthy respect for him. Life's not a casual walk down easy street toward heaven. It's a battlefield littered with minds that Satan has placed to take us 
down and delay us. Now, if we place our faith in Christ, we're getting to heaven no matter what. That is secure. But Satan wants to delay us, knock us off course. He wants to do whatever he can to prevent others from joining us on that journey. So to be sober means we have a serious attitude about Satan. It means that the world, that we see the world in its true condition. And that true condition is that Satan is roaming around as a lion trying to devour us. So we must be sober and respect him. That's our attitude. But we also must be alert and recognize him. That describes our discernment. Peter says, be on the alert. And it comes from a couple words that mean to be awake or to arouse in the morning. We have to be on guard and watch carefully for him. And this is important because Satan doesn't just show up plainly where we can always see him. He's going to approach us when we are vulnerable, just like a lion seeks bushes and twilight and terrain to devour his prey when the prey are vulnerable. Satan does the same thing to us. If he's going to get us to embezzle money from our company, he's not going to give us an opportunity to take money from the place we work when it's payday and all of our bills are paid. He's going to wait till we have $9 in our bank account and we've got three bills due that same day. Then he's going to give us a nice way to take a little money from our employer. If he's going to try to get us to cheat on our spouse in our marriage, he's not going to approach us during the first month or two when we're in that honeymoon phase. He's going to wait till we're 10 or 20 years into marriage. We've had a couple of rough years already. We haven't been intimate with our spouse in a couple of weeks or months. And when we're going on a business trip with a cute coworker of the opposite sex, or handsome, depending on your gender, he waits till we're vulnerable to show up. That's why we need to be alert and recognize him. Because he doesn't make his tactics plain and easy to identify. He's sly and he's crafty and he waits till we're vulnerable. Now with that, it's good to mention, not every single thing is a satanic attack. And I hope, I'm sure you know this. If you have a little headache, that doesn't mean it's a satanic attack. If you're a little short on money because you spent everything on Amazon on your payday, if you haven't paid your taxes for a few years and you get a letter from the IRS, if you're speeding, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and you get a ticket, those aren't satanic attacks. Just this morning I woke up and I had some severe pain in a couple parts of my body and I thought, is this because I'm preaching on Satan? And then I remembered, yesterday we got out the slip and slide. <laughs> so it wasn't a satanic attack, it was a four-year-old that's an only child, he didn't know how to do a slip and slide. So of course dad had to show him and I can feel it today. But every, not everything is a satanic attack, but we do need to be alert, recognize him, and use discernment. And third, we need to be ready to resist him. In verse 9, Peter told us that. Be ready, uh, be, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now to resist something means we are on the defensive. We don't go out looking for Satan, but we do need to be defensive against him. And I learned about being defensive going hunting with my dad in Alaska. A few times we've gone um, 
bear hunting and doll sheep, I think. I don't remember always. I just go. I don't know what we're hunting for. He ha he's going to shoot something, but I'm always the defensive person, right? So he's got the rifle to kill the game. I've got the big uh, bear thumper, he calls. If a bear shows up, and that's the first thing I've, I've learned. It's like, okay, I'm always defensive. I'm always looking around the bushes. I'm always looking for a mama bear and a couple cubs that'll cause us issues. And that's one thing you learn when you live in Alaska, like my parents. You're in their territory. Like, you're the minority among them. And that's kind of like us. We are on Satan's ground, and we have to be ready and defensive against him. And we do that, as Peter describes here for us, with a strong faith. And that faith is based on Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. He existed forever. He never sinned. He never broke a promise. He never told a lie. He'll never fail us. That faith is based on a perfect person, based on a perfect God. And that faith is based on us getting to know his word and trusting him. Warren Wiersbe says, the better we know God's word, the keener our spiritual senses will be to detect Satan's work. So we're ready to resist him with a strong faith, but also with a strong family that Peter talks about here, referencing the church community that they're in. And that's one way we resist Satan, is by gathering together here with unbelievers in a formal church service, or maybe in a Bible study group like some of you do, or it could even be with a dear Christian friend where you sit down and have coffee and talk or go for walks. When we have those times where we can talk with other believers, pray for each other, and share our struggles with them. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, The Adversary, uh, Your Adversary, the Devil, he wraps up Peter's talking, Peter's message saying, if you would stand against your enemy, you must be serious-minded that is, recognizing the nature of the conflict in which you're engaged. You must be watchful, recognizing that Satan is dogging your steps every moment of your life. You must maintain an unbroken dependence on the Spirit of God. You must use the armor that God has provided that you might be able to stand against the fiery darts of the wicked one. Therefore, because of the nature of our adversary, be sober and be vigilant. As we wrap up our time this morning, while we fight against Satan on earth now, Scripture tells us that there will be a day where God deals that final death blow to Satan. But it's a process. We know Satan has access to God in heaven now, based on the book of Job. But in Revelation, during the tribulation, it says Satan will be cast down to earth and never be allowed to return to heaven. Then at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be put into the shaft of the abyss for those thousand years, restrained for a little while. Then he's led out again to gather one more army. And that's when God finally throws Satan in the lake of fire forever. And that serves as a reminder for us that God will deal with Satan in a future time. But Satan is that enemy that we face on earth right now. And while we fight him on earth, I think God gives us a gentle reminder that he ultimately will deal with Satan when he gave that prophecy against the king of Tyre all the way back in Ezekiel. Because as Ezekiel wrote down these words that God gave him, 
It was not more than three years later that God used a king from Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar to show up in Tyre and spends 13 years plummeting Tyre and demolishing the city. What a reminder that must have been for Ezekiel after he writes these words down about Tyre, but also about Satan as a reminder that in the future, God will conquer Satan, just like Nebuchadnezzar conquered Tyre. Let's pray as we wrap up our, our service. God, thank you for this word you've given us, messages through Ezekiel, through the Apostle Paul and Peter, that tell us that we have an enemy, our adversary, Satan, I pray for protection for our church people, that you would give them, through your Holy Spirit, the ability to battle against Satan, through a strong faith in you and understanding of your word, and through a strong family of believers, people that love you and serve you. In these things we pray, amen. So at this time, we're going to have communion together. So I'll